1: Talk. Plain talk. unrivalled talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count
2: on
3: for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate.
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
3: Online on
4: DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
5: Good morning and welcome to the Home of Common Sense, the world headquarters of straight talking. You know what it is. It's Talk TV. It's me, Mike Graham. It's the Independent Republic, uh, the place where you get to give us your view, your opinion, your say on what we're talking about today. And today uh, we're going to have a look at the Queen's speech. It went out live during my show yesterday, the first time in 59 years, uh, not actually presented by the Queen, presented instead by Prince Charles, who's on the front pages this morning, front page of the Sun. You'd have to say he does look a bit weird, doesn't he? I was on the Talk Live. Last night, uh, And I was saying he looked very much out of place. He wasn't sitting on the same throne as the Queen. He wasn't really handling the papers that he was holding in his hands with any great sort of confidence. He spoke in a rather stulting, uh, sort of halting way, I thought. Um, and of course, the Queen wouldn't let him have the crown, not the real crown. You can't get your hands on that. Absolutely no chance, son. I'm coming back. Well, you don't know if she is, but we hope and we wish her well. Uh, we're going to speak this morning to Professor Frank Ferreide, uh Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent. He's going to talk us through some of the things that were actually in the Queen's speech, which we didn't talk about so much yesterday some of the new laws that are coming in laws about energy security sweeping away eu red tape things about jailing protesters registered homeschool kids trying to put flesh on the bones of what's called leveling up what does it all mean and what about the work from home scenario still a massive debate going on around the country about whether we should be forcing people to work from home or whether we should be allowing people to work from home or whether we should be making people come back to the office that i think is absolutely and utterly uh the bare bones of all of it and we want to hear from you because most of the people i hear from certainly on social media who say we must be allowed to work from home it's much better well i'm sorry it may well be better but that may not mean that it's better for absolutely everyone oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand will say uh, that we've won a victory today as well for talk tv the doctors voted and they decided not to close-up shop at 5pm. That's the GP surgery, so well done to them. We'll be bringing in news from Finland, where Boris Johnson is currently flying to, uh, just before they join NATO, of course. Kevin O'Sullivan is here uh, with his take uh, on Meghan running for president, and also uh, on the Wagatha Christie case, which has been going on. Uh, Grammy-winning producer Steve Lillywhite's going to be here to tell us what he makes of the Chelsea takeover. Plus, LaDonna Harvey is going to be in as well. We're going to talk about planning, why neighbours are being turned against neighbours. We're also going to talk as well about the weirdness of paying over a thousand quid for a pair of trainers by balenciaga i mean what sort of idiot would when would wear them and spend that kind of money we'll be trying to find out 0344 of course is the right number to call this is the independent republic of mike graham let's do it And it's a very, very good morning out there today. Uh, One piece of bad news, though, however, if you're trying to struggle your way through uh, East London, because unfortunately, Sadiq Khan has been swanning around in New York doing his kind of JFK act, making out that he's like the latest Martin Luther King figure who's going to sort of arrive on the scene. He's described by New York's mayor as a rock star. I mean, he obviously has been absolutely milking this image that he's got. I don't know where he gets it from, of being, you know, Mr. Cool, uh, the guy who's in charge of one of the biggest cities in the world. Well, one of the biggest cities in the world, I'm afraid, Mr. Khan, has ground to a halt because the Jubilee Line, one of the main underground lines that runs through the east of London, from Stratford all the way up through London Bridge, where we sit right here, and all the way up through to North London and all the way eventually up past Wembley, right? From London Bridge to Stratford, the line was suspended today, completely and utterly, meaning that probably millions of people weren't able to get to work. The streets around where I live were completely rammed with people walking, waiting for buses, queuing for buses, trying to get on buses, because the train, which carries so many people to so many jobs, just simply wasn't working. Sadiq Khan, you need to get home and you need to fix it. Thank you. Let's talk to Frank Ferrelli. Frank, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us, as ever. Uh, let's kick off with the Queen's speech. What did you make of uh, of Charles' performance, first of all? I know it's not a particularly political question, but I think it's quite important. I, th- I thought it all looked a bit odd.
6: Yeah, it did look very odd. He looked like somebody that was totally out of place. He kind of would have rather been somewhere else, yeah. uh, basically working on his vegetable plot. <laughs> uh, but for some reason or other... Uh, he was forced to be in a situation not of his own making. And just watching him, you got the impression that somewhere along the line, the British establishment is a little bit unravelling. They've kind of no longer have that kind of sense of confidence, that ability to project uh, Britishness into the future. And instead, what we're left with is almost like a daytime reality television show.
5: Yes. I mean, that is the trouble, isn't it? Because they've got the kind of the... The colonial hangover, uh, which resulted in some, some rather ugly scenes in those uh, trips to the Caribbean. Uh, we've got countries in the Commonwealth saying they want to leave the Commonwealth. We've got sort of, you know, people accusing us of monetizing and, and terrorising the world uh, over the course of uh, hundreds of years ago. And, you know, I imagine um, with the Queen coming near the end of her reign, there's a lot of, uh, of questions about whether the monarchy will be seen in the same light, isn't there?
6: It's a huge problem because... Uh... To her credit she's always been able to come across as a very respectable legitimate figure that exercises moral authority she just seems to be above everybody else yeah. at the same time she projects that kind of sensitivity to the needs of her people mm-hmm. whereas the new generation of royals really come across as slightly bumbling uh, individuals who are you know not exactly uh, able to uh, kind of come across as authoritative figures no and, and if you're not authoritative what's the point of a monarchy what's the point of being a king or be, being a prince if you just like any old person uh, who you meet down at the pub so in that sense i think either we find somebody who is the genuine article who can be a real king a real monarch or alternatively we need to ask ourselves some very difficult and serious questions about the future of this institution. Yeah, I
5: think so, because you have to say the only thing that Prince Charles is an expert in is waiting around, really, isn't it?
6: Waiting around, and he's got some esoteric ideals. He gets some, he's really into a whole lot of environmental fads. And, uh, you know, not that he's very good in the morning, you know, putting whole meals and whole food and organic stuff on the table, but the king needs to be a little bit more than that. You know, a king needs to be a a real statesman-like individual who can demonstrate, who can personify what being British is really all about.
5: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, And it's an interesting point, sociologically in a way, uh, that brings us to, to, to where we want to go next, Frank, because... Where Britain is at the moment is a kind of a crossroads as well, isn't it? Because we've got, you know, all sorts of problems with the country. We've got seemingly an NHS which is on its knees. We've got um, limited abilities to, 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 to enforce uh, our, our way of life, if you like, around the world. And the police officers uh, of the world that we used to be, we can't really do anymore. Boris Johnson's off to Finland this morning. He's obviously trying to make his place on the global stage much bigger than the place he has at home where he's not particularly well-liked, where not much is working terribly well for him. And yesterday's Queen's speech, a lot of uh, complaints about the fact that he didn't really do much about the cost of living crisis, which is what is really upsetting everybody.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think Johnson is right to go to Finland and Sweden, because on the world stage, he can come across as being a serious player, especially in comparison to the other European leaders. And uh, I think to some extent, is far more effective... Uh, as an individual who's uh, making a case for supporting Ukraine than he is back here in Britain domestically in getting anything done. And the big tragedy for me is if you look at the last few years, it's really a story of wasted opportunities where nothing much changes, nothing much gets done. There's all these promises, you know, we're going to stop migrants coming in from Calais. We're going to do this and that. And you look back and nothing has changed. Mm. And when you look at the Queen's Bill, I can predict with utmost certainty that most of these uh, bills are not going to uh, lead to any kind of significant change in, in our way of life.
5: No, I think that's the trouble, isn't it? Because they're very good at talking up what they plan to do. I mean, Boris Johnson yesterday joined TikTok, opened an account on TikTok and looked really out of place. Um, you know, because it's for kids, it's for like teenagers. And he's going, well, here's where you're going to be able to see all the work we're doing in Downey Street. And I'm thinking there's not going to be much content coming out of that then because, uh, you know, most of the work seems to not really get done at all because they promised to stop the migrants coming. They promised 55 different ways of doing it. And yet still they come. You know, they're going to lock protesters up for six months, maybe a year. No doubt people will find ways around that. Um, Energy security Nobody's really sure what that means. The price cap is still on, but it doesn't stop the prices from doubling. So I don't really understand why you can even call it a price cap.
6: Well, that's the tragedy, that there, there are all these uh, small measures that are being talked about and introduced. But your instincts are absolutely right, because you know they're going to say that uh, you know, now we're going to be able to deal with all these protesters who are making life miserable for commuters and people going to work. And outwardly, that sounds brilliant, because it's about time that we uh, acted swiftly and decisively and you know, against people who are, ma- are simply making life miserable for, for us rather than because they are involved in genuine protest. But it's likely that given the way that the, uh, uh, the system works, the system of uh, legal justice works, the courts work, that they're going to be let off. I mean, you will have remembered that not so long ago, uh, in, in one of the cases, one of the judges uh, began his uh, summing up by saying, I completely, su- uh, completely support your protest. I'm with you all the way. If you have judges and you have people sitting in the magistrate's chair who are on side with the protesters rather yeah. than with the people, uh, you can bet your bottom dollar uh, things will remain exactly the same.
5: Yes, I don't really see. And also, you know, we have already put some of these people in jail and it clearly works to, to deter some of them from repeating their actions. Um, but some of them are just nuts and it's all they've got in their lives. And every time there's a school holiday, it seems to get worse because a lot of the kids then join in, a lot of the teachers join in. But by and large, the Just Stop Oil Brigade uh, are all the same sort of five people.
6: Yes, and what's very interesting is that for them, this is their identity. This is their way of life. For them, making uh, life difficult for the rest of us is seen as a a blow for freedom. And they actually believe that somehow they're doing for us what we are too scared to do. They're like in the forefront of changing our world, and they should be rewarded and praised for the way they're sabotaging everyday existence. And it seems to me that what I find particularly reprehensible is that a significant section of the cultural elites actually says good on you, you know, this is really good what you're doing. Yeah. You're, you're, you're kind of doing the, the right things Instead of saying, go home, get a job, take a bath, take a shower and, and get real. Mm.
5: Exactly right. It's a fantastic uh, way of putting it because we are living in a split country, it seems to me. We've got London, and we'll come back to this in a moment because we've just got to take a little break, uh, if you don't mind, Frank. We've got London and the rest of the country, it seems to me, and the rest of the country lives in the real world and London lives in this kind of bubble uh, of wealth, of privilege, Uh, And of kind of madness, it seems to me. We'll talk more about this. This is Talk TV.
7: Essential, edgy, engaging. Advanced postulation for any angry nation. Ask for it by name. Talk Radio,
4: the home of common sense. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
5: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots going on. We're here, of course, until one o'clock. Plank of the Week is out there if you want to go and find it and watch it. Don't forget, Julie Hartley Brewer is on the talk tonight as well, uh, so you don't want to miss that. We're talking to Frank Ferrady, Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent. Um, let's talk a little bit about the culture wars as well, Frank, because um, uh, I see a story this morning that some advertising has been withdrawn uh, from the general populace because it might be offensive um, and Tesco's I think is the, is the party involved um, we're just trying to be funny and I don't think any of it is offensive and you know we're becoming this kind of nation of um, I don't know risk averse maniacs you know the government constantly telling us to you know stand to the left make sure you look both ways before you cross the road don't look at anything that might upset you you know don't call anybody a name they don't like what's going on?
6: Well, I think we become uh, wary of human communication. We're, we're now living in a world where if I make a, a bad joke at your expense, instead of uh, seeing that as just bad humor, you get denounced for uh, somehow microaggression. We now live in a world where every time somebody feels the slightest bit of uh, offense, that then becomes an argument for shutting somebody down or for forcing a company to get rid of their uh, advertising uh, strategy. And I think that what has happened is that we've personalised public life to such an extent that we're kind of worshipping people's fragile identities so much that human communication, genuine open communication becomes difficult. And I talk to a lot of people who tell me about the difficulties they have when they go to work, because when they go to work uh, they say they have to really censor themselves, they have to watch what they say, they no longer feel free and confident about joking around, messing around with their workmates. And I think that has a very uh, disorienting and corrosive effect on, on the workplace because historically, you know, people you know, go out for a drink, maids joke around with each other, you know, people feel free to uh, mess around. And if that becomes something that is no longer allowed or something you have to control, you create an, an entirely different work environment which uh, denudes... The, the working experience of its positive kind of joyous kind of creative yeah. dimension
5: yeah which should bring us on to the to the working from home conversation but let's talk about uh, a couple of other things first microaggressions the NHS wants to make sure that microaggressions are tackled uh, in the in the in the workplace you'd think they might want to tackle the waiting lists first um, but now apparently asking somebody where they're from could be considered a racist question which seems to me to be ludicrous that's small talk isn't it
6: it is small talk uh, what they call microaggression it used to be miscommunication or misunderstanding yeah. somebody's word i think we should ban the term microaggression or at least question it yeah because it assumes that there's something inherently wrong and hateful about me asking you know sort of oh you're much smarter than i thought you were
5: yeah i
6: mean that's just you know i'm not there to insult you i'm just there to express an opinion but these days, microaggression has been institutionalized to the point at which uh, people can get penalized. So for example, very recently I talked to a, if I can call him a fireman, I know I should call him a firefighter, <laughs> but in my book is a fireman. Yeah. And he was telling me, he doesn't really understand what has happened. He's just been told that he's going to have to leave work for six weeks on full pay. So when he asked, well, what did I do? You know, what was my, you know, what was my problem?
1: Mm.
6: Uh, Instead of telling him what he did, they just simply say, you were micro, micro-aggressing somebody. He has got no idea who the complainant is. he got no idea who he's offended. But it basically you know, means that his kind of life has been turned upside yeah. down. In his case, he's very happy. He says, six, week, six weeks with full pay, you know, it's not a bad deal. But in some cases, that could be the prelude to just losing your job. Yeah,
5: well, of course. And also, um, you know, what use is it to the general public who need to have firemen turning up at their house to put fires out? They've got one less man to help with the, the, the fires, which seems to me to be madness. And he's not given a chance to answer the accusation either, so it could even be an unfounded one.
6: That's right, I and mean, that's the worst. So, for example, if I ask you where you're from uh, and you get offended, then why not give me a chance to explain that I'm really interested in people's families' background, yeah. I'm really interested in their origins. There's right. nothing really wrong with that. That's not a, an attempt to put you down in any way.
5: No, of course. Absolute nonsense. And again, to to, to talk about the workplace and to have the workplace kind of completely revolutionised by these wokists who want everybody to to tread carefully around each other and not really learn anything from each other and not really socialise with each other because that might cause a problem. You know, the work from home brigade, um, we're expecting there to be some rule uh, or law put in yesterday by Boris Johnson about having the right to work from home. Um, That wasn't put in there. And so now they're all crying about it. Um, And the Daily Mail this morning has got a headline that says, you know, the work from home um, is now got the death knell hanging over it, because, I mean, you know me, I'm a great believer in people not working from home. You know, if you want to work from home, then do a job which is not office-based, you know. But if you're office-based, you should be in an office.
6: Yeah, I mean, if you're a sculptor or a painter, by all means, stay at home. But, you know, a lot of jobs need to be done in the office. But more important than that, what the uh, impulse to work at home really means is, is is simply a, a, a reluctance to take your own work seriously. Yeah. Because you probably know it's only when you are in the same room with a lot of other people and you kind of uh, banter a bit, you yeah. kind of argue a little bit, you exchange views about your work, that the creative process of work really comes into its own. And if you're just isolated, sitting at home, right. you just end up going through emotions. And um, what I'm really scared about is that we're giving far too much Uh, Leeway to this whole idea of working at home and forgetting about the fact that uh, our our future as a country, our productivity, our creativity, our capacity to innovate uh, depends on us sitting together standing by the water cooler Mm. exchanging exchanging. and actually
5: looking into each other's faces if not looking into (laughs) each other's eyes and seeing how people react i mean if you are doing lectures with students i'm sure you prefer to have them in the same room rather than doing it on zoom on zoom it's a completely different uh, experience and it's not in any way the same And so, and all these people also who defend the right to work from home and say we much prefer it, we don't spend money or time commuting, you know, we don't have to go into a seriously heavily populated city and all of that, that's all fine, as long as they don't expect anybody else to be at work, because they do expect it. They expect the taxi drivers to be at work, they expect the people running the shops and the restaurants and the bars that they go to to be at work. You know, imagine if we had all of them working from home.
6: Absolutely, and and, uh, I know as a university professor... That despite all the talk about blended learning, when I, uh, I'm in a lecture hall and I'm talking to my students, I'm able to watch their body language. I'm able to watch their reaction. I look at their eyes, which is very different on Zoom. Yeah. I'm like a, ro- a robot. Yes. I, I mean, you know, my capacity to interact is very limited and I'm far less effective as a teacher. Yes. Than I'm in a proper lecture, uh, physical environment. Right.
5: No, I mean you're quite right. I mean, if you were, if you are doing a lecture on, on Zoom, you might as well be a robot. You might as well just record something, um, which you can play out and give yourself one of those, you know, arty emoji type, you know, um, head, you know, looks, and, and, and just literally talk like Max Headroom, you know. Because there's no point in you physically being there.
6: Yes, that's right. Yeah. It's absolutely
5: uh, mad. And one final thing, uh, Frank, as far as the uh, Boris Johnson trip goes to uh, to Finland. Um, you're saying that he is a very much more uh, at home abroad, if you like. Um, and is that the kind of the future? Because, I mean, it seems to me that this used to be the case with US presidents when they go abroad and start talking about foreign policy. It's usually when things are pretty bad at home because everywhere he
6: looks at home, it's not looking good. I think you got an important point. Uh, you have to remember also that uh, this war is not going to end anytime soon. And this war is going to totally... Uh, unravel Europe, uh, unravel the global and international economy. So there are some very important issues at stake. Uh, And if Johnson can somehow come across as a more convincing individual uh, than some of the other world leaders, then obviously that's going to strengthen his position also domestically. So, So I can really understand why it is that he's drawn in that direction. At the same time, to give him credit, he has done some good things abroad and he has been a little bit more effective in providing support for Ukraine than all the others. yeah. Uh, so, so give him credit where it's due. I just wish he'd get a few more things done here in British society. Yes, I think that
5: would be what people would like to see as well. Frank, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Frank Ferreira, Professor of Sociology there at the University of Kent. We want to hear from you now because we talk about Boris Johnson a lot. We talk about the levelling up scenario. We talk about working from home. We talk about the difference between being sort of, you know, a global leader, which is what he undoubtedly is, and a leader at home. A lot of people disappointed that the cost of living is still gonna be horrendous. And that's the case. Let's get some news headlines, talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got an awful lot going on today. Uh, I know some people couldn't care less about the Wagatha Christie scenario, uh, but it is on the front pages this morning. Peter Andres, Chipolata, and every exquisitely awful detail from the trial like no other. I mean, it really is pathetic in some ways uh, that these two are going at it, isn't it? Uh, Because, you know, Rebecca Vardy and uh, Colleen Rooney, two women uh, who've got more money than sense, it seems to me, uh, who have decided to sue each other and pay a load of lawyers, a load of money uh, in order to clear their reputation. Rebecca Vardy. What sort of reputation does she actually have? I'm not sure. We'll find out. I'm sure, during the course of the week, but uh, uh, we'll be talking about that with Kevin O'Sullivan coming up and much, much more besides, of course, Uh, we'll also be visiting Finland to see what's going on with Boris when he gets there. Right now, though, let's talk to Dr. Charles Levinson, uh, doctor and chief executive of Dr. Call, because I'll tell you why. Uh, This is a victory. Uh, Some people think small victories, large victories, doesn't really matter. Uh, This is definitely a victory for talk TV because we were saying that the doctors who were going to vote whether they should work basically nine to five, close their GP surgeries at five o'clock, should not vote to do that. And they haven't. So all credit to the doctors who have not voted to do that. So you will now be able to go, hopefully, to see a GP after 5 p.m. But the proof will be in the pudding. Charles, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, uh, finally... The doctors of uh, the NHS have done something right. Uh, they've decided not to close shop at five pm, but it's still quite hard for a lot of people to see one, isn't it? It is.
7: So yeah, I mean, th- this is a step in the right direction. You're right. The the we, we, services have been cut back and cut back, and, and and so it's great to see that this proposed cutback hasn't happened. But it is um, it is it is very variable and patchy around the country. So in some parts of the country, there just um are they can't recruit doctors and there are um some practices have far too many patients per doctor and so they simply can't provide the service at the moment so yes uh, yeah, i think that's really the problem is
5: there any ceiling on how many patients you can actually have uh, on in your practice because i mean you know you get paid don't you by the by the number of patients that you have so that's kind of an incentive to
7: have more than you need I I suppose that could be. But the 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 optimum number is about 2000 per doctor. And there are practices that have 10,000. So that is uh, uh, they simply can't provide a service uh, when that happens.
5: Yes. No, I think that is the problem. And I mean, we saw, uh, I think, earlier this week that in Somerset, you can't get a dentist if you want one. Uh, There'll be people, I'm sure, in some parts of the country who simply can't register with a GP because there isn't any way to
7: find one. No, there isn't. So what um, I think what needs to be done is the um, is patients need to be given alternatives when there isn't a doctor, because I'm afraid in some places there just isn't one. And so the and I I mean, I know that's not a good thing, but if patients are empowered and given the ability to bypass the GP and book their um, scans or um, or, or order medication directly when Mm. when their symptoms are clear. Then um, I, I think that you know that's not beyond the wit of man to to, <laughs> to to make that work. Well, you would think that.
5: I mean, that's something I say pretty much every day about some section of the NHS which isn't working very well. You know, it isn't really really is not beyond the wit of man. I mean, it was only what two weeks ago, I think, the government said to hospitals and to universities, the two kind of remaining. Um, you know, lead swingers, as I would call them, uh, who are still operating as if COVID uh, is a massive problem and as if COVID is actually going to kill loads of people. You know, the hospitals still don't have as many beds as they should. They're still not allowing people to visit. Uh, They're still not allowing people to just come into the place unless they've had a COVID test. You know, the, the, the madness kind of continues. And I guarantee you that that's still going on because people are still telling me that it is. Yeah, it is. And another
7: sort of simple efficiency that <laughs> needs to be made is that the administration needs to be sorted out. So so um, if a doctor sees a patient every 10 minutes, they should be able to see six an hour. If they see one every 15 minutes, which is better for patients and for doctors, that would still be four an hour. Yeah. But they are um, at the moment saying that they can't manage more than 25 a day, which is is way below that. And it's because and it's not the doctor's fault. It's because they are given... All sorts of paperwork to do, medical paperwork, and then then given all sorts of administration, practice meetings, and so on to to attend to. So, it, really, uh, um, where we're short of doctors, we need to get the doctors. You know, in any private organisation like Dr. Call, we you know the doc you try and keep the doctors seeing patients. I don't get them snowed under with with admin. Yes, there does seem to
5: be an awful lot of admin in the NHS, and and people tell me that they still deal with an awful lot of pa- actual paperwork rather than computerised records which is a real problem, isn't it?
7: Yeah, it is. And um, it, it, uh, um, it's partly all the uh, checks and balances that have to be made uh, uh, by the regulatory bodies and so on. And some of that is unavoidable. You, know, you do need to know that your um, practice is doing everything uh, uh, as it should. But, um, but that needn't, the doctors needn't be involved in that. No, absolutely.
5: And I mean, one of the difficulties as well um, is finding enough sort of, um, it would seem, staff to actually be ancillary staff as well. Because I'm told that some of the pay for an awful lot of the people who work in doctor surgeries and who also kind of help out in hospitals as as ad, admin, admin assistants to the doctors, um, there's shortages
7: of them as well. Well, as we, as, as we get to sort of a society where we get more and more um, technology supporting everyone... We are moving to become a society where more and more of the uh, less skilled jobs are can be done it can be automated and and so then what you end up needing is a smaller number of more highly skilled people who you who you can afford so you can give them more training and you can pay them better and that's what's happening across across the board and i know it creates a problem it potentially that may mean that there are aren't enough jobs to go around but that's another issue uh, in, uh, in that uh, but that is what's happening across across the board except in healthcare, where we are still um expecting people to do things that that could be automated and yes. and then and then we don't pay them enough and um and uh and then we get have turnover and then we have spend money training new people. And it's it's very inefficient. But there seems to be no shortage of money to pay people to do
5: non-medical jobs, for example, like all of the, uh, you know, kind of diversity management teams that get brought in, uh, all the people who run HR, all the people that, uh, you know, are are employed by health trusts to to basically do jobs which they can do from home because they're not required to be anywhere near a hospital or a doctor's surgery. So they don't mind paying people like that, sort of 35, 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70,000 pounds. so i
7: think i don't think uh the problem in the nhs is is in the end a shortage of money i think most people would would agree with that not everyone most people would but um the problem is that it is the easy solution so when there's a problem and and a a government has has to uh, be seen to do something um, it's a it's a it's a easy win to pledge a bit more money. Mm. But but that isn't that isn't going to solve the problem. No, it really isn't. Dr. Charles Levinson. Thank you very much indeed. Chief
5: Executive of Dr. Call. The problem here seems to me, uh, and we keep saying it, that it just needs fixing somebody. And it could be Sajid Javid, but it could be somebody else in government needs to get to grips with the NHS. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. The people that ring this show every day know it. It's not working. Fix it. Do something. Make it happen. Please. This is Talk TV. Colonel James, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Hi, Mike. You well? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, out in Finland. Um, We're not sure what his itinerary is, but he's going to obviously be discussing uh, NATO membership with uh, the Finns and the Swedes. this is uh, something that's been on in the offing, I suppose, for a while. You can't blame Finland and Sweden for wanting to, get to, to be protected
2: by NATO. But what do you think Russia's um, reaction is going to be? I think it's irrelevant. I mean, ultimately, Finland and Sweden are sovereign countries. They're democratic countries. They basically have a, uh, a population in both cases. Who, who basically, um, you know, vote for what they want and it's about free will. And yeah. if they want to join NATO, then of course they can.
5: Yes. But I mean, the, the, the narrative that Putin pushes on his own people is that, you know, he's in Ukraine to stop the advance of NATO. Um, so by doing
0: that, I suppose... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen. Premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: That's kind of playing into his narrative a bit, isn't it? not at all i mean uh, i would ask putin to what extent nato is advancing um nato isn't advancing at all nato is a defensive organization it's a very effective defensive alliance and um it does what it says on the tin it's there to protect uh, nato countries those who sign up to article 5 from uh, russian aggression or aggression from any other nation
5: Yes, we can just see Boris coming off the plane, I think, as we speak. Um, what's your take on uh, what's going on in, in Ukraine? We had a caller just before the news to, to, who said that, you know, the fear that people have that if we were to go in and, and take Putin on, and when I say we, obviously, I mean NATO rather than the UK, um, the fear of, of doing that means that they don't do it because he might retaliate in a way which would be untenable, i.e. might unleash his nuclear weapons. But as he made the point, he might do that
2: anyway if he ends up losing. Well, I think the first thing is that we're not going to take Putin on at all. Uh, NATO is a defensive alliance. Um, Putin knows full well that uh, if he violates Article 5, then, then you know, we will unleash hell. Uh, and he's too bright to do that. Um, you know, look, so far, the, uh, the conflict in Ukraine, as awful as it is, is very much within the confines of Ukraine. Um, and um, in as much as we are supporting Ukraine, rightly so, we're not taking on Putin directly. But if red lines are crossed, if um, he escalates the conflict, if he extends the conflict beyond the confines of Ukraine into Article 5 country, then, of course, we'll intervene. But until that point in time, we're not going to do so. No. And I
5: mean, if we were to intervene, uh, the word from the head of the British Army is that we don't really have enough soldiers to have a meaningful force. What do you make of that? I mean, it has been denuded over the
2: course of years, has not it? When I joined the Army back in 1993, all those years ago, uh, the Army was 102,000 strong, mm. plus, of course, the reserves. So, yes, in my time, we have seen the Army shrink in size. I was very intrigued by Jonathan Mark's comments yesterday, um, clearly as head of the Army, as CGS. Uh, he's not in a political appointment, but uh, he made a pretty bold statement. Mm. And we've seen over many, many, many years, senior officers not making political appointments. I make two points. Firstly, I welcome that. I think, as the head of the army, uh, he's a man of great moral fiber. Um, I know him well, I used to work for him. And actually, that view, I think, is to be taken seriously. And I think the second thing is that uh, he's doing his job, um, yes. which is running the army and serving the interests of the army. Yes. My, yeah. my, my, my humble view is that 73,000 is not enough. And I think we do need to invest a bit more in the army.
5: Yeah, well, I think because of the way that things are, are, are going on at the moment, also, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the sense of direction in the armed forces was that you don't need quite so many, perhaps individuals who are combat troops, and you maybe need more people sitting in the Department of Defense, you know, checking out cyber warfare and, and spying on people with drones and that kind of thing. But I mean, what's happening in Ukraine would suggest that
2: that's maybe wrong. It's a really interesting point. I mean, I was a great fan of the integrated review when it came out. I read it. It's a very good document. It's very accurate. And actually, it will survive the test of, of what's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, I think the key word is agility. For me, it's about having forces that are capable and agile, that can redeploy, that can change its form, that can suit whatever ends we need to achieve. But what I would say to you is that quality has, um, sorry, quantity has a quality of its own. And what I mean by that is that ultimately there's no substitute for force. Mm. And we've seen recently with, with with COVID and with flooding and the fuel crisis and, and, and ambulance drivers, the utility of force goes way beyond deploying soldiers onto a battlefield. And therefore, in my view, investing in the British Army is absolutely the right thing to do.
5: Yes. And so how would you do that exactly? And, and, and where would you get the money? Because obviously, you know, money is in short supply, although they keep finding it for all sorts
2: of things. But I mean... Is it easy to do? Yes. I mean, it's about money, ultimately. It's about building capability. But what's interesting for me, of course, is that, of course, as a politician, I'd want to spend the peace dividend on other things, hospitals and social care, of course. But we've proven, again, over the last two to three months that there is a credible enemy out there, that we need force, we need to apply force, that force is a deterrent and and anybody who suggests that we don't need armed forces that we don't need nuclear deterrent is barking up the wrong tree uh, we absolutely have to have it and personally i'm growing towards the notion that we probably do need to think about spending three percent gdp on defense yeah i mean we could do it with a few more ships as well while we're at it couldn't we well i mean ships again are very important uh, i'm an army man but uh, the navy and the ref play a fantastic role very very important we can't be a global influence and a global power Uh, unless we have ships, and uh, we need those ships. We need more ships, in my view. Um, Perhaps more ships, perhaps less expensive ships, but platforms are good, um, and having that global presence is really important. And don't forget, don't forget, you know, wars are prosecuted on land, at sea, and in the air, and, of course, in cyber and space as well. So we need to make sure that we invest in all five domains to make sure that we retain our edge and to maintain our credible deterrent for anybody who wants to take us on. Yes, because Boris Johnson has been right out front, hasn't he, in terms
5: of the sort of global Britain uh, p- push that he's making, where he has been very much leading Europe, if not most of the world, in the way that he's dealt with uh, Ukraine, in the way that he reacted to Ukraine, first of all, certainly much better than any other European leaders, who, who took ages to kind of, you know, the rules as slow on the uptake there, as they were uh, with getting the vaccines organised, you know. Um, but there are questions about whether that's his kind of metier now, because he likes the idea of being... The man on the global stage, because there's an awful lot that's going wrong back home and there's an awful lot that needs fixing back home. Um, and I always remember when uh, I was working in America, the American presidents would always start a war somewhere if things weren't going well domestically, you know, because it took everybody's mind off it. So, I mean, Boris is doing a great job out there and, and, I, and I congratulate him for doing it. But, you know, let's not forget that he needs to, to do things back here as well.
2: Yes, I agree. I mean, I've, I've heard the word distraction used on numerous occasions that Ukraine is somehow a distraction from what's happening domestically. What a load of nonsense. Uh, what's happening in Ukraine is very, very serious. It's about territorial integrity. It's about threat. It's about people being killed um, unnecessarily, in my view. It's about an aggressor that doesn't need to be there. So my view is that Boris Johnson is uh, handling himself very well indeed on the world stage. He's providing great leadership. Um, the MOD is doing a good job as well. And and this has been analysed by politicians, by the media, by people for the last three months, the approach that the UK has taken towards Ukraine. It is absolutely right, in my humble view. And um, ultimately, what happens to Putin in the future is a matter for the Russian people. Um, but at this point in time, the UK is not turning. And how important is the money from America going to be?
5: Um, because it's an awful lot of money. I mean, Congress has granted even more money than Joe Biden asked
2: for. Um, what will the Ukrainians do with that? Well, the Ukrainians will clearly want. To translate that into a variety of means. So it's about military capabilities, about weapons, it's about ammunition, it's about sustaining the Ukrainian army. But I guess it's also about um, making sure that industry is is maintained, that medical supplies, that humanitarian concerns are, are being looked after as well. Um, this is a battered, beleaguered population that does not deserve what's happening to them right now. And uh, I think it's absolutely the right thing to do that the americans the brits the germans the french all of our nato and coalition allies are doing what they are um this is about deterring uh, unwarranted russian aggression and making sure that their troops go home
5: and the queen's speech yesterday let's finish with that james um A lot of people concerned slightly and disappointed that there wasn't much in there uh, that would help people sort of fight off the cost of living increases that they're facing uh, every single day. As I said earlier, every time you go anywhere, it seems the price of whatever it is you want to buy has gone up.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, I was obviously here there yesterday in Westminster. Um, It was a very short speech. It was um, Prince Charles' first one, I believe. And uh, it was short and sweet. Um, without too many frills. But what was interesting is after the speech had happened, um, CCHQ pumped out quite a lot of graphics in terms of what else was being planned. So there is an awful lot of depth and substance beneath that surface i mean i can tell you for a fact i saw the prime minister yesterday um there are some plans about helping people with the cost of living crisis it is our absolute number one priority right now domestically in my view and um and i'm quite confident that uh, that we will turn it around i mean what's happening at the moment is uh, is is hurting people all over the uk but it's a global problem and uh, the uk in my view will do what it needs to do to put money back in people's pockets
5: and he looked fairly uh, fairly confident himself yesterday boris i saw that he was even having a little joke with keir starmer as they walked in, into the house of
2: lords um is his mood good yeah it's always good i mean there was a reception last night number 10 i went to um he was on top form um he spoke to uh, my parliamentary colleagues uh he was buoyant he was confident he was enthusiastic he's absolutely up for it um You know, this is an irrepressible man and, um, you know, I I do support him and I think he'll be at the helm for a while yet. Okay. Well, next time you see
5: him, uh, tell him I'm also irrepressible and I want to see him sitting here uh, in front of me so I can talk to him.
2: I'll ask him. Don't worry. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Colonel James Sunderland, MP, uh, Conservative MP for Bracknell, uh, telling us about what's going on with Boris Johnson, what's going on in Finland. Uh, The question I suppose some people might ask is whether Finland joining NATO is a good idea for Finland and for NATO this is talk TV
4: on your mobile on your wavelengths talk radio and talk TV.
5: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We'll be playing you out a clip from Plank of the Week uh, coming up a little bit later on. Uh, I was in the company of Nadia Essex and Richard Taylor uh, from Welsh Wales, uh, who was up uh, for the day in London. Uh, we've got much more to do. We're still on the hunt but for anybody in this office who wears Balenciaga sneakers, especially the kind that cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Uh, they're selling a pair currently, for they retail for around about $1,800, uh, which is around about 1,300 quid. And they literally look as if they've been left in a skip. And then somebody's poured water over them, thrown a couple of uh, uh, bags of rubbish in. Uh, I mean, can you imagine? I've had a couple of great tweets from people saying, I'm going to take uh, an old pair of shoes and just spray paint Balenciaga on them and walk around. And maybe someone will offer me a thousand quid for them. Surely nobody's stupid enough to wear those anywhere near here. We'll find out. Kevin O'Sullivan's on the hunt to find out whether anyone is stupid enough to spend that kind of money on these kind of things uh right now though it's time to talk to russell quirk because neighbours to get the right to vote on housing plans is the front page of the sun this morning uh sorry the times i should say they're now going to give neighbours the right basically uh to kind of fight each other over things that they might want to do to their houses seems a mad idea to me russell very good morning to you what do you reckon yeah
3: good morning look i'm astonished by this and um Look, it, 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 given the government's track record on stupid announcements, um, <laughs> that, that takes a lot, I think. Th- this is absolute, utter lunacy. So, look, it, it's, it's pandering, of course, to the crowd as far as Gove, Michael Gove's concerned. Obviously, mm. he's the behind this. Um, the, the one thing we don't need in the planning system to get more houses built, and bearing in mind there's a deficit, as you and I have talked about many times, yes. about 50,000 60,000 houses a year not built, it should be. The last thing you want is a load of NIMBYs having more power and being able able to stick their hand up and say, no, I don't want my neighbour to have that extension, often, even though they've got one themselves. You know, I don't want that horrible barren wasteland opposite me to actually have a few houses in it. Um, and what, what we actually need is less democracy in planning, frankly. Now, I don't mean at what they call the strategic end, which is where the local plans are derived. Yeah. But if this genuinely, Mike, is about nosy neighbors, disgruntled neighbors, not wanting a few extra houses in their town or village because they're worried about the schools or they're worried right. about the local traffic or whatever. This is this is gonna result in far less housing mm. rather than more. How the government's ever gonna to get to meet their targets and get their local authorities to get to meet their targets on housing, to provide the homes for sale and for rent and social housing, right? right? Because this has implications all the way kind of down the sure. path. This is madness. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. Well, I mean, it seems ridiculous
5: to me. I mean, I, I don't know whether somebody's told Michael Gove that this is some kind of a vote winner, because apart from anything else, it seems to me that it will it will stop more things being done than than start more things being done. And all it will do is, as you say, is, is give a sort of charter for people to,
3: to hate their neighbours. Yeah, and and it's bad enough as it is. So what happens in the planning process now is that, you know, if if you live in a little cul-de-sac and someone owns the bit of land at the end, which is kind of overgrown and horrible, and they decide to put another five or six houses at the end of your cul-de-sac, Every single person in that cul-de-sac lobbies their local councillors with an inch of their lives and says, we don't want more building, uh, we don't want more traffic, we don't want this, we don't want that. And those, those councillors then effectively are held to ransom by the very vocal minority of people in that area. And, that, and that's what happens across mm. the country. Yeah. What this is going to do is to supercharge that problem. Yeah. You know, and and it, do you know what is also very odd, Mike, is that in, in this kind of excuse for a government, is that only six months ago Robert Jenrick who was the housing secretary at the time said look I'm going to reform planning right and we've heard this phrase reform planning about 400 times in the last few years he was going to do the opposite so he was going to impose a process on local authorities where they designated areas as uh, growth or um, you know housing zones whereby you could then build as a developer without even applying for planning permission now okay you've got to be a bit careful with that because you can end up with all sorts of hideous unintended consequences but if we want to get stuff built in Britain mind only nine percent of Britain is actually built on right now before yeah. the kind of you know the the mid, middle england kind of green belt um sucker uppers kind of start kicking off at us here and yeah. um, but but it, it, that was pulled because lots and lots of rural conservative MPs kicked off because their residents were kicking off. If we don't grab this by the scruff of the neck, this planning problem, and, and start to stop being so political and sensitive about it, we are really going to have a housing crisis on our hands over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years.
5: Well, I think we have already got one, haven't we? And what about this other idea they've got, where they want to raid the big developers' profits, right, uh, in order to fund schools, roads... And GP surgeries, and that apparently will be used to encourage residents to agree to more local house building.
3: Well, how's that going to work? Can you imagine? But they won't and, and and this already happens. So this is just recycled. This is what they call this is Section 106 stuff, which is when you're a big developer and you build, let's say, fifty or hundred units or more, you have to make a contribution by way of a section one oh six agreement, which then goes to roads and hospitals and schools. So it already happens, but you know, believe me, in my local town where I live in Bruntwood, in the local plan, there's a two and a half thousand home development called Dunton Garden Village, mm. which has so far taken ten years, ten years to come to fruition. Mm. Why? Because despite the fact that it's going to provide a school and a doctor surgery and so on, the local residents that live around it, guess what they're saying? No, we don't want it. Right. And, and and if this is too democratic and we allow, you know, bored people, retirees sitting at home to kind of decide, No, I don't want that in my backyard. No. Literally what NIMBYism is, we're never gonna build sufficient no. Well, nobody I mean,
5: no I mean if you go and ask anybody, unless you kinda of go up to some maniac or other. Uh, would you like to see a load of building trucks coming past your door every day while they build a new housing estate just over there?
3: Of course you're going to say no, right? You're not going to want it. Of course, if you're a 50 or 60 year old retiree, you know, sitting at home on your pension and the last thing you give a monkeys about is the social and moral imperative about house building in the UK. I'm sorry, yeah. we're a selfish society. Most people don't give a monkeys about that. So the, the, the notion that government says we're now going to provide a few more hospitals and rail stations through Britain by building loads and loads of houses it isn't that good. There'll be zero buy in zero zero buying this government honestly they're proving all the time in many respects my how out of touch they really are particularly when it comes to housing Mm. and and frankly i'm sick of over my 25 year career in property hearing successive governments punch out massive headlines on the basis of them solving this problem and they simply never ever do i wonder if they really want to you know and is it coincidence that 10 percent of conservative party donations come from guess who yeah. Well,
5: that's Outgood. the point. And I mean, because there's been no cogent policy for years and years and years on anything, really, um, you know, Boris Johnson's now decided the great idea uh, that for him is to, is to sort of go around the world telling everybody what a great prime minister he is and how brilliant global Britain is. But unfortunately, while it's getting more global, it's getting getting less kind of efficient back home.
3: Yeah, yeah. And and it would help if we had a housing minister, so not the Gove level, the Secretary of State level, but the actual housing minister whose responsibility is supposed to be provision of housing. I think we're, I've actually genuinely lost count. I think we're on number 11 in 10 years. Mm. Now, tell me how on earth you can get coherent strategic policy and consistency from individuals that are in the job for an average of 10 or 11 months. And then they they whiz through the spinning doors at Whitehall and end up in the Home Office yeah. or the Foreign Office or whatever. You, you know what we need is a proper housing czar, for, whatever, for, for want of a better phrase, that is in tenure for four or five years and actually has some power to put a proper strategy in place and actually to deliver on it. Because it's all very well... You know, tempting us all as members of the public, particularly election time, with all this political rhetoric about how we're going to build five million houses a year. It simply never happens. Maybe you should be the housing czar, Russell. I think that's a good shout.
5: I think it is. I'm going to when I get Boris Johnson here, I'll put it to him. (laughs) Please. See you later, Russell. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, three, four, 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 nine, nine, one thousand. This is mad, isn't it? Now you will have stories I'm sure of things that you've tried to do to your house or properties that have been built around you without your permission you might think this is a great idea so you can stop everything happening i don't think it is i think it's going to be a charter for people to basically you know have wars with their neighbours and to declare war on their neighbours that can never be a good thing 0344 499 1000 is the number this is talk tv on dab plus on the app talk radio and talk tv Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots going on. We've got many, many things to show you uh, over the course of the next hour and a bit. Uh, We'll be talking, of course, to Kevin O'Sullivan very shortly, but a lot of people responding to the uh, Balenciaga footwear scenario. Tom says, hey, Mike, Lewis Hamilton would definitely wear that ridiculously scruffy footwear. Pablo says, Mike, those trainers look like they've been scavenged from a war zone. And Carol says, I've got an old pair of walking boots. 200 quid would be good. Cheap by comparison and in better condition. I mean, it does seem incredible, doesn't it? And I found Maisie's tweet, which I mentioned earlier. Keep it quiet. I have a pair of old trainers ready for the bin. I'm going to paint Balenciaga on the sides and flog them on eBay. Uh, There's always some pretentious Egypt willing to part with their hard-earned dosh. Well, surely there couldn't be anybody that daft uh, who would actually come uh, to the table and spend upwards of 1,200 to 1,400 quid on a pair of scruffy old Balenciaga sneakers just because they've got Balenciaga written on them. I mean, it's ludicrous, isn't it? Absolutely idiotic. We've been on a hunt to see if there's anybody around here that might do such a thing. Kevin O'Sullivan uh, has been searching around and we might have an answer. Kevin, a very good morning to you.
4: Yeah, these Balenciaga trainers that cost £1,290 and look like they have been pulled out of a skip. What kind of an idiot would shell out that kind of money on this crap? Uh, There is someone uh, in the talk uh, TV offices. No. Done um, just that. I'm not gonna say who it is because it's not fair. James Max. <laughs> <laughs> just clear my throat there. What did an I idiot. Hear?
5: I thought I heard James Max's name there. No,
4: no, no, no. I, I just, just Clear my throat. James Max.
5: <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is he doing? He's got more money than sense in that case.
4: Well, he gets up too early in the morning. You see, it's uh, played havoc with his senses. Yeah. Blimey. So he just goes out and spends spends the rest of the day wasting his money on ludicrous trainers.
5: <laughs> My <laughs> goodness me, what a shock. That's a shocker. Absolute shocker. Listen, we better talk about something far more important than that. Uh, let's talk about, first of all, uh, the old uh, Wagatha Christie case. That's not more
4: important, Mike.
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but maybe, maybe it's not more important. You may be right. But it's hitting the front pages. Peter Andres, Chipolata. I mean... It's hard to it's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine two more kind of ridiculous individuals. And when I heard yesterday that Rebecca Vardy has taken this to court in order to preserve her reputation. I was wondering what reputations you think she's got exactly.
4: Well, that goes for both of them. The point is, good luck to them. they both married well and they're having lovely lives. Uh, But this case is ridiculous. They are wasting millions and millions and millions of pounds protecting their alleged reputations. Uh, And uh, the fact of the matter is no one gives a flying damn who wins this case. So whether it's Rebecca or Colleen, everyone will go, meh just sort of shrug their shoulders. It doesn't matter. Uh, so uh, why are they doing this? They're just wasting, I was about to say, their money, but I think we're really talking about their husband's money, aren't we?
5: Yes, I think so. Um, I, th- I think I think at one point, um, um, uh, Colleen actually did have a column for OK Magazine or something, but I'm not sure that uh, much of the money that she's got uh, comes from anywhere other than Wayne Rooney's uh, back pocket. But he's maybe going to be taking the stand at some point, which should be quite amusing.
4: Uh, yeah, Yeah. I saw him turning up at court yesterday. We know he's been eating all the pies now. No <laughs> wonder Derby got relegated. I was going
5: to say, he didn't spend much time with the training pitch by the looks of it.
4: <laughs> he did he was in the cafe all the time. Is he still <laughs> at Derby or has he gone? Uh, yeah, yeah, he's still uh, in overall control uh, yeah. of the team, I think. Uh, but he got them relegated. Uh, there were extraneous circumstances. But to go back to this case, it, it's mildly amusing Uh, Not as much, not as amusing as some of the quality papers, alleged quality broadsheet papers seem to think. You know, these posh people on these broadsheet papers, you know, know, of course it's nonsense, but I can't help being fascinated by it. It's my guilty pleasure. It's not. It's pathetic. These awful,
5: these awful people.
4: It was mildly amusing for a while. It's dragged on far too long. No one cares who wins. And what they're doing is clogging up our already blocked up legal system. So why don't they both go back to their footballers' wives' mansions and never bother us again?
5: (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, you could make an argument to to suggest that there might be more important matters for the court uh, to actually discuss. (laughs) We've got some kind of... We've got like a massive (laughs) backlog of cases, right, which goes back years because because half the Crown Courts in the land are closed. You could maybe set aside some time for it, you know, in about 10 years' time.
4: Yeah, no, exactly. And if you want to know the big legal case that is making all the running on online and uh, um, uh, the net, the web all over the world, uh, it isn't the Wagatha Christie case. It's uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Yes. Much more interest in that than this nonsense about who flogged stories to the sun. I mean, who cares?
5: Yes. No, I know. It is is mad, isn't it? But isn't it funny how all of these... Types of celebrity sort of cases, one woman against another man, one woman against another woman. Everybody gets terribly tribal about it. You know, if you're watching the Johnny Depp case, I mean, we did a bit of it on Plank of the Week yesterday. Nadia Essex uh, made Johnny Depp one of the planks. You see some of the vitriol she's getting from people who think that Johnny Depp's the greatest guy that ever walked and that Amber Heard's a terrible woman and it's all her fault that he's been dragged through the mud
4: despite the fact that he lost the case in the UK. Yeah, it's kind of unwise to take sides uh, in that case, uh, which is exactly why, Mike, uh, on our Saturday show, 7 p.m. on Saturday, <laughs> Mike and Kev's Saturday Night Talk Away, you and I will be taking sides. We I'm not will. Gonna who's going to be backing who?
5: Yes, no, that's a very good thought. I'm looking forward to that show as well because uh, there's a plan for some singing, I understand.
4: Oh uh, well, yes, yeah, so we're going to have, uh, and I'm not making any, there's no reason for this, just randomly, yeah. we've been testing, you and I, our uh, comparative art skills, uh, such as they are. Yes. Uh, unbe- unbelievably, uh, you're slightly better than me. Drawing
5: the news has become <laughs> unbelievably popular, it was a great idea Drawing of
4: mine. The news. Yeah, you're better at it than me, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, we're going to now test who's the better singer. Uh, in Mike and Kev's Euro Trash Song Contest. Yeah. Uh, no reference to anything else. Just randomly, random ideas. Yeah.
5: yeah, why not indeed? And I've already decided that before the show begins, I might actually draw uh, my, the, my own news uh, this week because I think I feel like I should draw like a halibut or something like that because oh, uh, a famously <laughs> <Yeah>. Chris Tarrant <laughs> tried to make out that I was some kind of idiot because you couldn't find halibut in fresh water. Well, guess what? He was wrong and I was right. It's just like the concrete yeah, conversation. Yeah, I,
4: yeah you, were, you were right, but you just just randomly said it, and it just so happens that (laughs) halibut do occasionally go into fresh water. You didn't know that before you said it. You just put it out there and hope for the best. Well, well, I know. You always do. That's
5: not true. He (laughs) accused me of being ignorant about fishing, right? Because he claimed that because he said that he fished for halibut, I should have known it was in the sea. But why would I know that? You know?
4: Yeah, but you also didn't know that it was in fresh water, so you just put it out there and now you're claiming to have brilliant knowledge yes. about halibuts. <laughs>
5: <You> <laughs> well, I just know
4: anything about them.
5: I'm just lucky, I guess. Let's talk about <laughs> yeah, uh, like concrete. Yeah. Now like coming later some. on in the next hour we're going to play out the uh, the the talking to Kev as well because uh, you've been out on the streets again trying to uh, gain uh, some knowledge from the from the good people that that uh, that walk around uh, these parts about Meghan and Harry because um apparently Joe Biden's sister I'm, I'm, I didn't even know he had a sister, has been interviewed and she thinks Meghan Markle should run for president.
4: Yes, yeah, she thinks that she should join the Democrat Party and she'd make a very good president. I've got bad news uh, for Joe's sister. Of course, Meghan Markle will make the most catastrophically disastrous president. The only thing you can say is that she would, of course, be better than the current incumbent of the White House.
5: Yeah, I mean, the fact the fact is, I mean, my dog would be a better incumbent of the White House. You know, Ziggy would do a better job than Biden. Uh, do you see he was talking... Actually, that... he'd
4: also do a better job than Meghan Markle. <laughs> Meghan Markle must never be allowed anywhere near power. In fact, i have going to propose that she should never be allowed out of a Montecito mansion, so we don't have to put up with her for one moment longer. Yes,
5: I mean, I think people might not be surprised to hear that an awful lot of people are not interested in seeing them here, which is the real reason why they don't really want to come back, yeah. but they've been sort of forced into it because of the because of the necessity of the Platinum Jubilee. Let me ask you, actually, about Charles yesterday. Did you not think he looked a bit like a fish out of water, talking well, of alibis?
4: I mean, I don't, I don't want to uh, scare Munger or anything, but I, I didn't think he seemed very well. He just didn't seem to be there. Yeah. He seemed distracted and uh, unable to concentrate properly on the speech. Now, of course, the uh, Queen's speech, the Queen always delivered it in a detached monotone, because uh, that's the correct way to do it. Yes, But Charles took that to a ludicrous degree. I mean, I thought he was going to fall asleep at yeah. some point. I certainly nearly did, listening to him. Uh. That was a delivery on an epically bad scale uh, i'm not sure that you know that they i'm not sure what's going on with him but uh, he didn't seem uh to be all there to be honest. well the tragedy
5: for him is that if and when he does become the king in the next say five to ten years i mean he himself is going to be pretty ancient uh, and he, he'll have seen you know the best part of his of his life behind him um and then he'll probably only be king for a very short time before he has to hand it over to william
4: well, he'll only hand it over to William when he dies. That, uh, don't, don't, he, that, that debate is ludicrous. Primo is absolutely fundamental to the DNA of royal families everywhere. They will never uh, pass up on that. So he will... Take the crown. William will not be king until Charlie dies. That is just going to be the way it goes. Uh, but of course, we're going to see Charles much more performing the functions of Her Majesty, who at 96, you know, has got trouble with her legs and we wish her all the best. Yes. And by the way, going back to the uh, talk to Kev Vox Pop I did, uh, the question that I hit the streets asking uh, yesterday actually was uh, should Harry and Meghan be allowed to attend the Queen's Platinum Jubilee party. Uh, she's already banned them from the balcony, uh, but I think a lot of people in Britain would like not to see them here at all. After two years of calling the royal family racist, calling his dad mean, won't give him any money, all of their behavior genu- generally uh, has been a disgrace. So, uh, my question was should they be allowed to attend? The party mm. at all, uh, and the results were interesting, and uh, it's it's a question uh, that really got people energised. I'm, I'm finding out with these vox pops. If you get the question right, uh, you'll find that everyone yeah. wants to talk about them, and everyone wanted to talk about them. Wouldn't it
5: be great if uh, if they bring him to Buckingham Palace and sort of put him in a little holding area, and then the beef eaters arrive and drag him off to the tower, and lock him up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, i've watched that that would be good that would that, be the highlight of the uh that proper absolutely well listen kevin i look forward to seeing you on saturday 7 p.m uh, it's me and kevin o'sullivan uh, the saturday night talk away it's a brilliant show people are watching it in their droves so join them at 7 p.m saturday we'll play that out uh, in the next hour we've got much more to do steve lillywhite coming up as well he's going to tell us all about what he makes of the chelsea takeover and much else besides This is Talk TV. Talk
2: Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.